have together. And, and Lord, this time of year where there are a number of things that are going on. But Lord, I pray that in the busyness that we would be ones that would be sensitive to reaching out and that we have a message of goodwill and, and peace towards men. And Lord, that message is not reality unless people really come to know Jesus Christ, why he came to this world. And that was to save them from their sins, as Mary and Joseph were told, as, as Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we are so thankful that we can be here tonight and once again we can see how these things that took place so long ago and, and this day that sacrifice was made for a nation, that Lord, how it speaks of how Jesus Christ came and was sacrificed for us on Calvary's cross. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would just bless this time in your word and that you would teach us, help us make application. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 16 of Leviticus, we see that um, it's speaking about the Day of Atonement. It is the most important day in the Jewish calendar. And some say that this is the most important chapter to the Jews of the Old Testament because it speaks of that Day of Atonement. They call it Yom Kippur today, or if you're a baseball player, Yom Kippur. But it is in the fall time. It's the most holy day. It's a day of fasting, a, a day of, of uh, reflection. But as we look at chapter 16 of Leviticus, the thing to keep in mind is that sacrifice was made on behalf of the priest and his family, and then he would make sacrifice on behalf of the nation, the children of Israel. And we can go back to chapter 4, you recall, when we saw the sin offering. And in that sin offering, there was sin offering that was provided for not only the individuals, but for the whole assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel and also for the leadership, for the priests. And so this is going to be this day of atonement that they are to do every year. And we see the specifics given to us. It is the high priest that's going to go in and make that atonement. And so remember that as we go through Leviticus, that Leviticus is speaking about those sacrifices that are made um, so that the people can have atonement that is made, atonement uh, speaking of the covering of their sins until the one would come and die for our sins once and for all, Jesus Christ, and then also to have fellowship with Him. And so that's the way that they would approach God. And so in chapter 16, again, Keep in mind that um, this is uh, the most holy day that is being spoken of. And so we read in chapter 16, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, and when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So on this day of atonement, it was the high priest. He was the only one that was allowed to go in behind the veil uh, to that room that was called the Holy of Holies. Now, just a quick uh, reminder of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a temporary structure that we read about all throughout the book of Exodus. It was made of animal skins, and it would be consisting of two rooms. The priests were allowed to come into the tabernacle. You see, if you are of the, any of the 12 tribes of Israel, a male, you could bring your sacrifice to the outer court there, and there was the altar of sacrifice. And then as you would look in the outer court, there in the middle of the outer court was the tabernacle itself. 
And it was like a big tent. And so the priests would be able to go into the tabernacle. There was only one door. They would be in that one room, the first room, that was called the outer sanctuary or the holy place. And on the right-hand side was the shoe bread table with 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on the left-hand side was the seven-branch golden menorah that had bowls on top of those seven branches that had floating wicks and full of oils. And the priests would go in there and light those lamps every evening and they would trim the wicks. And then straight ahead, there was an altar of incense where the priest would go in and burn incense and it represented the prayers of the people. And so he would go in and offer that incense at the same time that the priests were also ministering there to the menorah. The menorah was the only source of light that was in that room. And then behind the altar of incense, as you recall, there was a veil. And behind that veil was a smaller room called the Holy of Holies or the inner sanctuary. And the Holy of Holies had one piece of furniture. That was the Ark of the Covenant, that box that was only about three feet long by two feet wide, made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments that we saw. And also in that box was uh, Aaron's rod that you'll read about in the book of Numbers when we get there in not too long of a time. And then also we see that it would be a jar of manna that would be put in there as well. On top of that box was the mercy seat that's spoken of here. And the mercy seat was made of pure gold and it was made of cherubim. And the Lord told Moses that I'm going to meet you with you and with my people between the cherubim. And so here on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, we see here that Moses was told to speak to Aaron. And he said, after his two sons, you recall in Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron had four sons, as we saw, and after there was the presentation of the priests and the dedication of the tabernacle, the priests were trained to do the sacrifices, instructed. We saw that the tabernacle was completed. And there, as they dedicated the tabernacle, as they were presenting the priests for ministry, all of a sudden fire came from before the Lord. And it was a holy happening. I mean, the glory of the Lord was manifesting uh, himself, And we see that the people fell on their faces and they shot it with a great shout. And then it was two of Aaron's sons, Nabat and Abihu, as you go into Leviticus chapter 10, that lit their own censer and they went into the tabernacle and they were consumed by fire. They were killed by the Lord. And so here we see the indication here is that after that event happened, that Moses was told by the Lord, you go and tell Aaron that you are not to go into the Holy of Holies just any time that you want to. There was only one day out of the year, and that was the Day of Atonement, that the high priest would go behind that veil into the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory of God was, where the tangible presence of God was. And so it gives indication that Nabat and Abihu ran into the Holy of Holies. So if you were a male of the children of Israel, you could come into the outer courtroom. You could present your offering. If you were of the priest, the direct descendants of Aaron, and keep that in mind because we will be talking a little bit about that on Sunday morning as we're going to see that Jesus will go into the temple and he's going to cleanse the temple there. And we're going to talk about the priesthood, how it became corrupt during that time and what Jesus was doing. And I, there's going to be some real interesting history behind it. Because as we look at it, that story, some people have a hard time picturing Jesus doing what he was doing. 
And I've even heard it taught that Jesus just kind of lost his cool and had a moment and, you know, uh, he lost his temper and was out of control for a short time. And it shows his humanity and shows that, you know, we do the same thing and he can relate to us as a bunch of baloney. He, he had a righteous anger. He was not out of control. And as we look at the text very carefully, which we're going to do and understand what was going on at that time, we can see why Jesus did what he did. But be that as it may, a little preview for Sunday morning when you come. But here was the high priest, uh, the priest that would go into the tabernacle and they would minister. They would uh, eat of the, sh- the, the loaves of bread. They would change it out. They would trim the wicks. They would burn incense. And then only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies here on the Day of Atonement. And so um, there it says that the Lord says that I will appear in the cloud, in verse 2, above the mercy seat. So he would meet with the Lord. One of the things that was real interesting when we were in Israel doing our tour last time, you go to Jerusalem and you can go to a place that's called the, um, the Temple Institute where they're making all the furnishings that we're reading about here in the Old Testament. And it is beneficial if, if you've been through the Old Testament with us and looking at the different implements and different furnishings and the tabernacle, which we did in Exodus that we talk about in Leviticus and we'll continue to talk about as we go into Numbers. They, when you go there, you have a clear understanding of what it is that they're talking about. Most Christians won't go to the Temple Institute when they take a tour of Israel because they're not familiar with the Old Testament. But as you go in there, you see the furnishings that they're making and, uh, and the shoe bread table and all these things that they're getting ready for the temple that they desire to be built. We know from prophecy that a third temple is going to be built called the Tribulation Temple. And we'll talk a little bit about that on New Year's Eve. But the Temple Institute, uh, one of the things I remember that, um, that some of you guys might remember who weren't with us, there was a picture, a painting of the high priest, and he was, his eyes about as big as saucers, as there was that, that you know, Shekinah glory. You can tell that, you know, he was just in awe in the presence of God. And it would be a very awesome thing. I mean, think about it. To go behind that veil... And he would go behind that veil, the tangible presence of God. He was the only one that was allowed in the whole nation. Now, we'll tie that in here in just a short time uh, with you and I, because I'm so thankful that we're on this side of the cross. Because Hebrews declares to you and I, as we know, that we can come into the Holy of Holies because of the blood of Jesus Christ, right? And we don't have to wait for one day out of the year. We can come in any time, any day, and we can come in and stay as long as we want because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, we will see in Matthew's Gospel in, in a couple months when we get to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that he will cry, cry out from the cross, um, it is finished. And then Matthew records that the veil ripped from top to bottom there that separated those two rooms. And the priests that were in the holy place could see into the holy holies for the very first time. And that veil that separated those two rooms, that veil where only the high priest could go behind to the tangible presence of God, it was no longer that way. It was rent from top to bottom. And it was like the Lord was saying to us, that now you can come into my presence. It's like open house. Now you can come in because Jesus has cried out, it is done, it is finished. And it's such a powerful picture of what we're talking about here in Leviticus chapter 16. So the high priest, you make sure, Aaron, and, and 
that you're the only one that comes in on this day before my presence. And so verse 3, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of the young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. And he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with the linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. And these are the holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. Now you recall when we were in Exodus chapter 28 in the making of the furnishings in the tabernacle, also there was a very uh, specific description given of the priestly garments. And in that we saw the high priest garments that were made, as Moses was told, to make these garments for beauty and for glory. In other words, there was to be a beauty about the, the garments, and there was as we looked at it, and for glory, that is, that it was to present and also it was to represent that God is a God of glory, that, that we glorify Him, that He's a God of beauty. So there was beauty and an appearance in these beautiful garments that the high priest would put on as he had the, the turban and he had the golden plate that was in that uh, headset and that said, Holiness unto the Lord. And of course, you and I are called to holiness. And again, we're going to see that as we go into Leviticus here, particularly from now to the end of the book, that that theme of holiness is really going to be stressed to the priests. And it's something that we are reminded of, as Peter would say, that we are called to be holy. He's actually uh, quoting from the book of Leviticus because God is holy. And because God is holy, we are to be holy ourselves. In other words, you and I in, as Christians are called to holiness, aren't we? And we need to remember that. And, and we're not called to uncleanness, as Paul would write to the church at Thessalonica, but unto holiness. That means you have been set apart. And because God is holy, it is our desire to live for him, to be set apart, to represent him, to, to walk with him, to, to live for him, to walk in his ways. That's what holiness is all about. And it's a loving father that says, I desire for you to live in holiness because I want to bless your life and because I want you to do well and I want you not to be involved in sin. And so sometimes Christians that maybe young or maybe not really grounded in the Word of God, as we learn about grace and we are under grace on this side of the cross, but being in grace doesn't mean that we continue in sin. And that's what Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, wouldn't he? He said, would she, we continue in sin that grace abounds? He said, certainly not. You're dead to sin. And you're walking in the newness of life. And so that is emphasized throughout the New Testament that even though we're under grace, we are to walk in holiness as we represent the Lord, as we live for the Lord. And so he had that, that plate, holiness unto the Lord, reminding us that we are called to holiness. And also there would be, you recall, the ephod that was kind of a vest and it had uh, the golden chains that put the two pieces together and then six stones on one shoulder and six stones on another representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it also symbolized that it was the high priest that was carrying the burden of the people on his shoulders as he ministered before the Lord. And then he had that breastplate made of gold and it had 12 stones representing again the 12 tribes of Israel. And it symbolized that he carried the people on his heart as he ministered before the Lord. And of course, it is a perfect picture of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins upon his shoulder, who has us in his heart and in all these things that we looked at. And then also underneath that ephod in that breastplate, there was a priestly garment that was made of uh, color blue that we saw. It was carefully woven one piece and then it had pomegranate 
bell, pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell around the hem of that blue priestly robe. And then underneath it was the white uh, linen uh, robe and then the white trousers that covered his legs because no nakedness was to be seen of the priests as they would minister or of the high priest. So on the Day of Atonement here, what the priests would do, the high priest, as he prepared himself to go into the presence of God, he would take off the, the, the beautiful priestly robe and, and the ephod and he'd take uh, you know, off the breastplate and he would just go in in the white linen garments that he would have on. And what it did was it spoke of humility. That he was coming in humility. He wasn't coming in his beautiful priestly robes, but he was coming in humility in the presence of God. And it reminds us how you and I, that we come in humility to the Lord, don't we? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, as we have discussed, that if you want to be great in the kingdom, as he would set a child in the midst of the disciples, that first of all, that you must become like a child if you want to enter into the kingdom of God. That is a child who is humble, a child uh, like faith coming to the Lord and then receive one of these little ones. You and I, we have no, you know, we cannot come to the Lord in boast of ourselves. And, and we can't come and say, look how beautiful I am, Lord. And, and, and the glory that I have and have displayed for you and how great I am in our own works. But we come in humility recognizing that Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me, that is our hope. That is our salvation and what he did for us. And then we have a living hope through the resurrection, as Peter would write in First Peter chapter 1. But we don't come boasting, saying, Lord, look what I have done to save myself. We were spiritually dead, and I hope that we understand that. And that's why grace is such a powerful, powerful picture to you and to me. The undeserved, unearned favor of God. We have received the favor and love and mercy of God, the grace of God, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in going to Calvary's cross. And so Paul would say, I boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. We come in humility, recognizing our need for him, our need to repent and turn and to surrender our hearts completely to Jesus Christ. He's the one that has done the work. It is finished. He has saved us. He's provided forgiveness. And he's provided a way for us to be able now to come into the Holy of Holies, right? Because of us? Because of my good works? Because I'm so beautiful or I'm so together or whatever it might be? Uh Uh-uh. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul would stress that. I come preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I come boasting in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. And so that is the central message that you and I have as believers is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so they would come in in humility and they would wash themselves. And then in verse 5, And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats of a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. And so Aaron would take a bull. You recall in Leviticus chapter 4, I'm sure you do, that it was for Aaron and the priests 
that it would be the sacrifice that was given a bull. Now, the whole congregation of the children of Israel, it would be a goat that would be offered as a sacrifice, as we're going to see here in verse 7. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. So there are two goats that would be presented and the high priest would cast lots on these two goats. And the lot that would fall on the one goat, he would then become the scapegoat. He would be let go into the wilderness. Now some ancient Jewish writings, the Talmud, indicated to us that they would bring these two goats of the, that looked very familiar, that were like twins. They were very similar in appearance. And as he would cast lots, the one goat again let free out into the wilderness. Now remember that they're out in the Sinai wilderness here, aren't they? So to let it outside the camp out into the wilderness wasn't you know, a hard thing to do. But in the temple, uh, first temple um, days, in the period of the second temple, what they would do is they would let that goat go out the eastern gate across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. We've been talking about the Mount of Olives as we saw two, uh, last Sunday, Jesus in his triumphal entry from the Mount of Olives into the temple and then out into the Judean wilderness. So he would go out as a scapegoat. And what it symbolized was God removing their sins and, and casting them out into the wilderness. And of course, the good news for you and for me is the scripture declares that God takes our sins and he throws them into the deepest sea, as Isaiah declares. And he takes our sins and he throws them as far as the east is from the west. And I like that. Because if you draw a line, you know, and go completely east, it will never reach the point of going west, will it? It's an infinite line. If you draw a line west, you'll always be going west. That's an infinite line. The Lord didn't say, I throw your sins as far as the north is from the south. Because even though it's a long distance up to the North Pole, if we were to go north, when you reach the North Pole, what happens? You start going south again. When you go south to the South Pole, it's a long ways. But if you reach the South Pole and continue on, then all of a sudden you're going north again. So those two points meet. The Lord didn't say north and south. I throw your sins as far as the east is from the west. We know from Scripture that it tells us that He chooses to forget our sins. And that's good news. Because when we are forgiven, we've repented and put it under the blood of Jesus Christ. It isn't five years, ten years later that the Lord says, Ah, you know what? I need to bring something up. Remember your sin? You know, I threw it as far as the north is from the east, but I'm bringing it back to you. The guilt and the shame and all of that that I wanted to just put upon you and remind you of. No, he throws it as far as the east is from the west. And it's so wonderful. We are forgiven and cleansed and it's forgotten. And so this scapegoat would symbolize that as it went out into the wilderness. And so the lot that fell on it would, would go out into that wilderness. The other one would be sacrificed. And so verse 11, And Aaron shall bring the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. And shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. And then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. Now a couple things here. One is, is that he, Aaron, the high priest, would have to make atonement for himself and for his house, so he would bring that bull. But then he would also 
bring the incense in as he would light his censer from the altar that was out there in the outer courtyard where they did the sacrifices. Now, does it remind you of anything? It should. Going back to Leviticus chapter 10, you recall that it was Nabat and Abihu. What did they do? They lit their own censer, ran into the Holy of Holies, and they offered profane fire before the Lord. They offered profane fire before the Lord. And we talked about that. As the priest would come in and he lit his censer there on the altar, he would go in and then be able to minister. For you and I, as we live as Christians, remember that the light that is in our hearts, and Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Where does it come from? It comes from the fact that Jesus Christ was sacrificed for us. So the light that comes in, Jesus, you died for me. And I am forgiven and I thank you. You're my Lord. You're the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. And as we live for him and as we minister before the Lord and whatever the Lord has called you to do, don't bring strange fire before the Lord. And you say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? Well, we talked about it a little bit when we were in Leviticus chapter 10. But if you're going to continue serving the Lord, that you need to light your heart and and that light that is in you needs to be from the altar. In other words, that it's the love of God that motivates us or constrains us is what Paul would write in the New Testament. How was Paul able to continue to minister in the way that he did? I look at Paul and I think I would have quit after day one. You know, after a few days on his first missionary journey and the traveling he went through and diseases that he experienced and the beatings he went through, he was stoned and left for dead. He was whipped and mobs came after him. Whole cities rioted over him like Ephesus. I thought, how was Paul able to do that? He didn't do it in his own flesh. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he also would always keep the foundation of his life and his ministry, the love of Jesus Christ, what he did for me, and the grace of Jesus Christ in saving somebody like him. And he was able to continue in ministry. And whatever God has called you to, remember that you light your heart on the cross. Keep your eyes on the cross and that altar. Jesus Christ died for us. If you offer strange fire, you see, sometimes people and maybe young people, they'll come to me and say, you know, I want to be in ministry and more involved in ministry. And I'd love to be in full time ministry sometime. And when they say that, I'll probe them a little bit. I'll say, why do you want to be in full time ministry? Well, because I want to help people. Now, that's a noble cause, isn't it? A noble reason, isn't it? Or, you know, I want to go in a mission field. I want to see faraway lands and stuff. And. Maybe that's a noble reason as well. But the thing is, the primary reason is because Jesus Christ loves me and died for me. And that motivates me. He demonstrated his love while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And that he first loved us. Now we can love him and we can love others because we have the love of Jesus Christ in us. You see how that works? If you just come and say, you know, I want to help people. So I think I'll go and minister. It's good reason, but it can't be the primary reason. Because what happens when those people start to become mean to you? Or they stone you like they did Paul. Leave you for dead. Now, I don't think any of us will be stoned and left for dead. We don't go through those kinds of things that Paul did. But the thing is, people will come against us. They'll be, you know, rude to us at times. They may not acknowledge you, whatever it is. And if you're going to have longevity and desiring to minister to people, your family, people at work, whether it's people that are at school, whoever's linked to you in your life, whether it's the children, whether it's a home Bible study, whatever it might be, it's the love of Jesus Christ that motivates me. I love God for what he has done for me. And he's called me to this. And, and Lord, you're going to sustain me and you're going to work by your Holy Spirit 
to allow me to continue in that. But if it's just because you want to help or that's the only reason or you want to see faraway lands or you just like being around people, what happens is you're not going to, you're going to get burned down in ministry. And that's what happened in Nabat and Abihu. Literally, they were burnt up because they offered strange fire before the Lord. So I hope I'm articulating that. It's a love of God. My love for Him. Lord, I love You. You called me to this. And Lord, because I have Your love in me, that I can love others and continue in ministering to others. The love of Christ that constrains us. And so we see here that he would offer that censer uh, before the Lord. In verse 13, he shall put the incense of the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bowl and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. On the east side, in the, before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring his blood inside the veil. Do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat before the mercy seat. So as he made atonement for himself, the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat for him and his household. As he made it for the congregation, uh, he would sprinkle the blood of the goat. Actually, the high priest, and a lot of people don't realize this, would actually enter into the Holy of Holies three times on the Day of Atonement. One, to offer incense, and it would be incense that would be burned there um, above the mercy seat, and that represented the prayers of the people. And then atonement made for his uh, family as he sprinkled the blood of the bull on the mercy seat, and then also the blood of the goat for the people of Israel. So he entered into three times. But that, that representing the prayers of the people, can I encourage you this Christmas season that you be in prayer, particularly for the people that you love, that, again, that you know, that you work with, people in this fellowship. Continue to, to cover them in prayer, just as they would cover the mercy seat before the presence of the Lord. That you and I, that our prayers are like incense before the Lord. Be praying for people. We get so busy this time of the year with all the cards and, and, and shopping, and, and that's all part of it. I understand that. But I pray that we would be sensitive to ministering to others and praying for them is one way that we can do that. That we would offer up prayers for those in your family and those, again, that are linked to you in your life, but even your church family, perhaps those that you know that have gone through loss. That this is a difficult time of the year. Those who have gone through hard times or those who maybe are uncertain what's going to happen in, in the coming year. That you offer up prayers for them and minister to them. And, and I think it's wonderful. Send a special card, you know, perhaps. And I'm thinking of you and praying for you. How comforting that is to people when we take the time to do that. But the prayers of the people and then offering this atonement is what the high priest would do. And then verse 16, So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle meeting when he goes into the make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of uh, Israel. And then he shall go out of the altar, verse 18, that is before the Lord, make atonement for it, and he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar all around, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. So the blood was applied to, um, verse 16, the tabernacle and also to the altar. There was the cleansing here, atonement made for the tabernacle 
um, that was erected there and for the altar as well. And then in verse 20, And when He has made an end to, of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle meeting in the altar, He shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of all the goats and, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now it's interesting, the scapegoat, again, that would be released out into the wilderness symbolizing that God has removed their sins. Now there's been some, again, in the Tolman and some other ancient writings that they have found, particularly when it came to the second temple period, that it was um, noted that the goat would be escorted 10 miles away from the temple. So he'd be escorted past the Mount of Olives and then begin to drop down into the Jordan Valley. And that individual would watch until that goat was out of sight. And then they considered that the Day of Atonement was completed. But throughout their history, again, as they got closer to the time of Jesus in that second temple period, what they begin to wonder is, what happens if somebody encountered the goat? What would happen if the goat turned around and came back, kind of like what a dog would do or something like that? What do we do if that happens? So they begin to come up with some you know, different things and they begin to alter the ceremony a little bit. And what it is written about is interesting that, that um, they would take um, a scarlet thread and, um, and if it uh, was one that... Uh, was read in, it, in the writings was that if it turned white, then actually then the Lord had accepted uh, the atonement and they were forgiven. If it wasn't, if it remained red, then the people would mourn for a year. And it's interesting, there's some in the atonement that indicate uh, reference that in the year that Jesus died, that that scarlet remained red, that it, in the scapegoat that was out. Other writings have indicated that what they would do is take the goat up on the mountain and they would wait for that scarlet to change white or red. And then uh, if it turned white and they knew they were forgiven, they would kill the goat there because the goat couldn't come back then or somebody encountered a goat. So there's all these different things and traditions and other things that are spoken of that are kind of interesting, little tidbits that I thought I'd throw out to you that uh, you can read about if you so desire to kind of get into it. But you see in verse 23, the completion of the sacrifices. Aaron shall come into the tabernacle meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he has put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in the holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering, the burnt offerings of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who released the goat as a scapegoat shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. And we read in verse 27, the bowl of the sin offering, the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn the fire uh, in the fire, their skins, their flesh, and the offal. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. And so we see here that the priest had uh, taken off his garments, he would wash himself and then come out, offer the burnt offerings, and then also the other offerings 
that would be given as well. And then in verse 29, as we finish the chapter, and this shall be a statue forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do not work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statue forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes the holy garments. And he shall also make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this is an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year as he did as the Lord um, commanded Moses. And so a couple quick points here. That the high priest again, as it was the day of atonement, it was the only fast that was really commanded of the Lord that would be done on that day. Now, later on in their history, after the Babylonian captivity, that as you read the last three books of the Old Testament, those books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, that they indicated that the Jews in, uh, incorporated more fast days. And it had to do with certain days of the Babylonian captivity. But the only one in the Old Testament, a day of fasting, was the Day of Atonement. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't fast at different times. You read about, remember Hezekiah, when the Assyrians surrounded uh, Jerusalem, and, and there's Shennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, who said that we're going to destroy you, we're going to come in, and, and they had destroyed everybody else. They were the powerhouse of the whole world. They were very brutal and cruel people, uh, and they were terrified. And so Hezekiah would lay out that letter, Shennacherib, called for a fast, and the people fasted and prayed, and then an angel came and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So they did fast at certain times, but also we know that it is in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, because Jesus would say that you guys fast twice a week, so they would fast twice a week. So the Day of Atonement was the only command that they were to fast. And today, as the Jews celebrate um, the Day of Atonement, they actually call it Yom Kippur because they don't have a temple. There is no sacrifices that are made. So it's a day of rest. It's a day of fasting for them. It's the most holy day of the year. But it's also a day of reflection. And so if you talk to the Jews and you say, hey, what do you do on Yom Kippur? I mean, you don't have a temple. You don't do sacrifices. What they will explain to you is that it's a day of reflection. So they re reflect about their good works and they weigh it against their bad works. And if your good works outweigh your bad works, and then you're okay and you're spiritually you know, acceptable before the Lord. So it's more complicated than that. But that's what they do today because they haven't had a temple for 2,000 years. But it's also interesting that it gives the guidelines here that when it shall be, and then the priest who is anointed, verse 32, and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place, shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes and the holy garments. That is, that Aaron, when he died, that again, the direct descendants of Aaron was to be in the line of the, the high priest. When we get to, to Matthew chapter 21, as we will see, the cleansing of the temple, we're going to talk about Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas. And we're going to see that they were not legitimately in the priestly line. And we're going to talk about why. And you'll find it to be very fascinating as we do. So the Day of Atonement that was given uh, there 
um, in the tabernacle. And, um, and it was the holiest day of the year as the high priest would go in. Chapter 17, just real, real quick as we're going to look at this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them that this is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp, who kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meaning, to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. One thing that Leviticus does, it shows us that God says, listen, in these sacrifices, this is the way I provide it for you to have atonement and to be able to approach me and have fellowship with me with the peace offerings and all of this. God says it is to be done at the door of the tabernacle, there at the altar of incense. This is the way it is to be done. If you decide that you want to do it any other way, then you're wrong. I have prescribed it. This way is the way that you approach me. So don't think you can go outside the camp and set up a little place and and start sacrificing because it won't be accepted. That's what the Lord is saying here in this chapter here in the first few verses. We know today that there are those who will say, you want to approach God, you can do it in all kinds of different ways. You don't have to go and, and, and recognize and accept and receive the, the sacrifice that Jesus did on Calvary Cross. There are many ways to God. Many roads to heaven. There's many ways that you can access God. You just need to be sincere. And what is sad is more and more the church at large is accepting that and compromising that gospel message. And in the scriptures, and it's amazing, if you guys get anything, and I know going through Leviticus, you think, wow, you know, all the sacrificing and, and, and blood and, and all of this and, and the sacrificing animals, and then they do it over and over and over again. It shows us the seriousness of sin. That it is so true that the wages of sin is death. And we see that clear back in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they covered themselves with fig leaves. And the Lord said, where are you, Adam? And found them. Did you eat of the tree? And then what happened? The Lord covered them with animal skins. To cover them with animal skins, something had to die. Those animals had to die. That's when death and sin entered into the world. So that picture on to Jesus Christ shows us the seriousness of sin and they would lay their hands on that animal, that innocent animal, and that your sins were transferred to that animal and then it became the substitution and it became the sacrifice and that animal died so you could live and didn't have to die. And it was all a picture of Jesus Christ who was sacrificed for you and for me. So he prays there in the garden. He says, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of suffering and death. Lord, Father, if it's possible, if it's possible for a man to be saved in any other way other than me going to the cross about what it is that I'm going to take on, the cup of suffering and death, what I'm going to go through, then let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but your will. And because Jesus was obedient to going to the cross, shows us that he knew that the only way that you and I would have any possibility of, of salvation is if he went to the cross. It's the only way. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And I'm pressing this point, And I know you guys are establishing it because you hear it all the time and you read about it. But there are so many people out there in the world that say, oh, you can come to God anyway, just as long as you're sincere. And that is more popular and, and 
the ones who are standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ, like you and I, we're the ones that are being told, well, you know what? You're intolerable. We're not going to hear this. How can you say that? God has set the standard. Just as he did in Leviticus, God said it's going to be done this way. And if you choose to do it another way, it's not going to be accepted. I've made a way for you to have fellowship with me, to have atonement. And he has made a way for you and I, and that's through Jesus Christ alone. It's through nobody else and nothing else. It is Jesus alone. And if people don't like it, it's like, I, I don't know how easier it can be for salvation. Just give your heart to the Lord. But people say, well, no, you know, I just want to be sincere, do my own thing, or I'm a good person or whatever it might be. You see what it is that I'm saying? So we want to make sure that we give a clear message to them. In verse 5, And at the end of the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, the door of the tabernacle, meaning to the priest, and offer them as a peace offering to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood in the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle, meaning and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. In verse um, 7, They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. It shall be a statue forever for them throughout their generations. And also you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who offer a burnt offering or sacrifice, that is, you're not to offer to demons. You're not to do your own thing. Of course, later on in their history, they would go and set up the high places and offer sacrifices to idols and all these other things. Paul in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he's talking about meat that was offered to idols, he said, you know, the Gentiles sacrifice to idols. He writes the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord in a cup of demons. You can't partake of the Lord's table in the table of demons. So we're going to see that the Lord's going to speak more about this as we continue in Leviticus. But then in verse 10, as we finish here tonight, whatever man of the house of Israel, their stranger who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So they were not to eat of the blood and um, the, in, um, from the life of the flesh, verse 11, because life is in the blood is what the Lord is saying in verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you, you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. That was one of the things that was given to the Gentiles when it was the apostles that wrote to them in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. Don't be drinking blood. Don't be taking meat offered to idols. And... Um, and stay away from sexual immorality. And in verse 12, therefore, I, um, uh, verse 13, actually, whatever man of the children of Israel or the stranger who dwells among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out his blood and cover it with dust. In other words, make sure that it's bled out. And for it is the life of all flesh. His blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats of it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what died naturally or what is torn by beasts, whether he is native of your own country or stranger, he shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening, and there he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. And so, Father, we thank you for this time again in your word. And we thank you for these chapters that give us a picture of what so powerfully your son did for us once and for all. 
And so, Lord, we're thankful that we can enter into your presence because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Because